Welcome to the Product Hunt Podcast. Uh, we have Alexis Madrigal. We are joined by my uh, co-host today, Jonah Bromwich, who writes for the New York Times and Pitchfork. Alexis, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. It is beautiful in Oakland today. It is cold in New York today. Uh, this is Jonah. Thanks for joining us, Alexis. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. So I wanted to start out uh, talking about your role at Fusion, and then we'll eventually get into some of the things you've written, and then some of your views on what's happening in media and in other places as well. I wanted to start by asking you, um, you've been at the forefront of a lot of places doing really interesting things in digital media. Uh, you do a lot of experimentation, whether it be at Fusion, before at the Atlantic. Um, is constant experimentation just constantly trying new things? Does that fit into your personality? Is there a part of you that connects with that? <laughs> yeah, man, that's a really good question. Um, I think so. You know, honestly, the way I came up in digital media was kind of the last uh, age of like actual blogger bloggers, not like professional bloggers working for publications, but like people starting things on like type pad and a blog spot. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was my first thing too, was this like kind of strange blog I started called Consumers Conspicuous, which was about... Um, basically tech that wasn't for white people. So I've pretty much <laughs> stayed true to form. Um, and, uh, and it was, I, I didn't know what the genre I was writing in was, you know. Um, and I think what I've come to think through time is essentially I thought like blogging or blogs were like a medium, a, a technology. But I think I've come to realize like it was actually a genre that had its like peak probably in like 2009. <laughs> and... I think of myself as, as a blogger, and one of the things that was great about being a blogger is that you just were constantly experimenting because there was no pattern. You were just like, well, I'll try this, I'll try that, I'll do this short thing, I'll do this long thing, I'll write 10,000 words on this stupid type pad blog that nobody reads. You know, like It was part and parcel of what I learned about the beginning of media. And then, of course, my first real job uh, was with Wired where... You know, I think back, it's hilarious, but they assigned me, like, learning Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) So I think the natural kind of way I came up and then the way that, you know, the the first job that I had um, just kind of led me down that path. And when I got to the Atlantic... You know, we used to do things like, this is before there's like art departments for digital places. Like I would make my own like bugs for special reports that I would essentially invent. Uh, I would like do my own like strange graphical treatments on photos. Like we, you know, there were no real rules around that kind of stuff. Um, and so it's less maybe that I'm particularly good at experimentation and more that the world tends to foreclose most people's creativity and I just happen to be at places where that wasn't the case. Do you think that's ever going to be the case? You're a father now, you're at Fusion. Is stability happening to you despite your best efforts? (laughs) Yeah, I'm boring as shit now. (laughs) Um, I mean, you know, that's that's another good question. I, I think that it is a little bit um, and it's actually one of the reasons that I came to Fusion was I felt like sometimes, even when I, like, I felt like I was at peak writing game from about the middle of 2013 to early 2014. Like, I was just like, you know, like a basketball player shooting really well. I was just like playing really well for a while there. And the, the pro- I literally felt like the problem was, like, I almost got sick of reading, like, my own stuff, you know? And I was just, like, I was hyper-productive. I was really tapped into what was going on. And yet, and obviously I liked my own work, but I felt like 
oh man, like if I'm sick of reading like this much of me, then like what is anyone who follows me feeling, you know? And I just felt like I wanted to like work in other mediums and do, do other things. And so that's actually what landed me um, first in management at the Atlantic, which um, was hard because management is hard. Uh, and then at Fusion to make this TV show, do live events, write stories. And then eventually I got sucked up. I mean, not that eventually, just a few months later, I got sucked up and became editor-in-chief here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now I'm actually on the other side of it and so desperate to be writing again. It's a funny thing. Um, like, be careful what you wish for, I guess, is the, the moral of that story. Right, well, let's talk about a little bit about some of your more recent writing. Um, something that you wrote over the summer that I think a lot of people were very, very interested in, both because the writing was great and also because the story was so compelling, was the story of this mysterious little book, Iterating Grace. Um, <laughs> Yeah. And so for people unfamiliar with that, can you describe what Iterating Grace was, how you found out about it? What was the kind of saga behind this little book? Yeah, so, you know, you the know, story, story really starts in LaGuardia, like so many good stories, and <laughs> like waiting in line for a plane. And I get this like tweet from Dory, uh, who works at BuzzFeed, who's one of the executive editors at BuzzFeed, and she goes, why did you send me this weird book, Iterating Grace? And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And so she started sending me like pictures of this little tiny brown book that said Iterating Grace. And she was like, there's like hand-drawn tweets inside. And so I was like, huh, that's weird. But I kind of, you know, I didn't really think anything of it. I was flying home from a long trip. I got home, you know, a couple days later, I'm finally going through my mail. And I see that there's this package, although it's got no postmark on it, but it had clearly come through our mail slot, and I open it up, and it's this book, Iterating Grace, along with um, like a pressed flower, and it said, thanks for your help uh, for in distributing these, at which point I was started to realize that my name had actually been used to mail these to a bunch of people, so I was a little and bit... And they had been sent from you? They had been sent for me. So, like, you know, if you went to, like, oh, what is the return address? It would have been, like, Alexis Madrigal on it. Um, and so I, I opened up the book finally, a little bit annoyed. Also, like, it started to seem like a viral marketing stunt, you know? Like, you're like, oh, boy, you know? <laughs> and then I read the story, and it was so fucking good. It's, like, this incredible short story. This guy, Coons Crooks, is sort of a survivor of the first dot-com boom. It's, like satire, you know, who moves to like a mountain in South America and begins like meditating on the tweets, you know, of people like, you know, Paul Graham and uh, startup people and, um, and tech company founders and stuff like that. But it's just, it's so savagely funny about like our moment and finding meaning um, in the tech industry and just like being just good writing, the characterization. I mean, in the early part, it kind of um, sucked me in. Like the main character, they describe him as being fully post-food and describes him like sitting there like coding all day, just like chewing half-frozen shrimp gyoza. <laughs> uh, it's, it was just like there, there were so many good things about this book that I immediately was like, this is not a viral marketing stunt. This is a real work of fiction. This is a real fucking thing by a really good writer. You know, I mean, there was like, this is my industry. I feel like I can evaluate talent and this person was amazing. And um, so I started looking into it and it turns out this person does not want to be found. And I, you know, if you guys want, I can go into some of the things that we, we tried to do to find the person. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But at but this point, it remains a, a mystery. It remains a mystery. There's, there's exactly one person who knows for sure, from what I know. And that person is a literary agent who brokered a deal between the authors, it turns out that it was more than one person, and one of the best fiction editors in the world, a guy named Sean McDonald at FSG, who is like the editor of Juno Diaz. <laughs> so now, Sean McDonald at FSG is publishing Iterating Grace, um, but does not know who the authors are. Um, like, it's that good. Uh, well, is it going to sell a bunch of copies? I'm sure it will not. It's like too niche. You have to be within our industry to get every to get why it's so good. But um, but I felt somewhat um, uh, uh, vindicated in my literary assessment of the work. <laughs> there seems to be uh, this interesting tension sometimes between uh, you know how tech people respond to criticism <laughs> or uh, to especially. Uh, you know, articles written about them. Do you ever feel um, that it's, it's, do you feel that it's sometimes justified? Do you feel that they are exclusively uh, or uniquely kind of resistant to criticism? Do you feel that the knowledge gaps are too wide? How, how do you make sense of? Of like the tech and tech industry and critique. Well, you know, I mean, I think where the reason tech gets, critiqued in the way that it does, and the reason it hurts is that a lot of tech people are well-intentioned. They really believe that they're doing good things. Um, they really want to do good things. And as an industry, it's sort of taken up the banner of progress from you know, previous industries that had held this stuff. I mean, some of these industries, though, are like electric power, uh, you know, the plastics. Like, these, are, these are places that were sort of at the front of like, commercializing technology and who believe themselves um, to, be, to be just forces of good in the world. And so sometimes when somebody tells them that they're not purely a force of good, they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? Of course I am. I'm, a, I'm the banner carrier of progress. Um, I think that it's also sometimes just like a mismatch of, of terms or, you know, like I think people want, people who grew up like I did at least, you know, early internet, weird internet culture, you know, before, you know even pre-web, um, but then the web and into what it's become, kind of can, can forget, like, the internet is, like, a completely commercial entity now, and that, you know, places like Google or Facebook or Twitter or whatever, like, they don't exist to, like, better the world of culture, you know? <laughs> that's, like, that may happen as a side effect, but that's not why they exist, you know? And I think if you came up in that weird you know, white guy dreadlock internet time of the late 90s. Like, it just felt like, you know, this was a culture-breaking, capitalism-redefining, crazy culture, you know? And, like, there are a lot of things that, you know, say, you know, on-demand or Airbnb allow to change in the world, um, but they're a business, and, like, that's how, you know, maybe with the exception of Kickstarter, which has actually tried to incorporate as a different kind of company, most of the form that technological change has taken is either venture-funded startups or these, like, big tech companies that are corporations on public stock exchanges, you know, that have the same desires as all other corporations and public stock exchanges, you know? It's kind of like a, a center of moral gravity where people who used to be interested in doing good in the world were maybe attracted to the civil sector, to working in government, to working in D.C., 
but now maybe are more inclined to go to Silicon Valley. And that kind of reminds me of an answer you gave in a product hunt for AMA earlier this month. Uh, you were talking about the difficulty of regulating self-driving cars, but mm. I thought you kind of hinted at a broader issue, um, which is that there's this increasing power of in, the importance of technology over government in various aspects of our lives. And do you think there's kind of a, an inherent conflict between between Silicon Valley, the tech sector, and between DC and the government? I, to me, it's not really a conflict so much as like a structural problem. Um, I think, and here's what it is. Basically, if you were to look at uh, a gun or a power plant or something, like you could review the plans and you could say it is safe, it is not safe. If you were to look at a car, you could say it is safe, it's not safe. You could put it through some kinds of, of testing to, to assure those things. And like it would not be considered, uh, it's, it's just not all that hard. Let's like look at software within that context and it's a totally other story. Um, Super complex, really hard to evaluate. Um, social software like Facebook, how could you even evaluate if, say, something like the newsfeed was fair according to some regulatory definition? Like, it only works for each person. It's like, it's like there's some things you might be able to regulate about the way that software works in the world, but it is really hard to have people who understand the technology well enough to actually do so, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I think. That's a, that's a really tough thing. It's very, very hard to like certify things as being safe or being secure or being you know, fair or being you know, not violating people's civil rights. Like, that is so hard. And like, you know, if you talk to the regulators, um, you know, California DMV, they would fully admit like, we have no idea how we as regulators could evaluate whether or not self-driving car technology was safe. Now apply that to like the whole internet of things, you know, um, who knows, you know, and, and, and of course there are also structures around proprietary software and things like that, where of course somebody like Google uh, would not want to have their software a, a matter of the public record. Um, and on top of all of that, with some of the stuff that's going on in artificial intelligence and neural nets, like, we may not, not all uh, you know, sets of algorithms or pieces of software are equally transparent in their action, um, even for the people using the software themselves. Like we don't understand all, how all these things work equally as well, um, particularly when things are, are doing their own trainings and waitings. So um, that observation to me seems to anticipate uh, kind of a broader conflict because you have technologists, particularly people like Peter Thiel, people who are uh, kind of outspokenly libertarian, mm -hmm. uh, and you have a government that at some point is going to be challenged to regulate them. What do you think happens at that point? Oh, man. Well, you know, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the only kinds of scenarios that, that I imagine and uh, in some kind of good spot, like, I don't know, algorithms, you know, regulating algorithms. Like, I don't, you know, it's, it's almost like, you know, the government would have software that could check you know because right. it's not like going to be it's like a space race but it's domestic and internal yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean because it, it is it is going to be really 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 hard and i think you know one place you could take a look at this is you know financial technology and like trading software and stuff um you know it's pretty tough 
the, the, the option that the government will always have, though, that I think hopefully keeps things along like, you know, a good moral path um, is just it can always ban stuff. And so there's always this ability to, to ban things um, if they happen early enough, right? I mean, although maybe Uber is just showing you you can actually ban it. It doesn't matter if you get sufficient scale and convenience going for you. But, but at least it is a way for the government to increase the cost of, of doing business substantially because you have to go underground, you have to fight lawsuits, you have to do all this stuff. As long as the government is united. But tech has been really clever. And Uber yes. is a good example with Uber about splitting the government, appealing to those in government who would support whether they're functioning as we are a small business right. or uh, leave, you know, take, don't take our Uber away. There's right. ways in which they're going to be able to disrupt the regular workings of the government. Part of That's the right. Problem. I mean, even, you know, and on a, on a, on a positive side, I mean, the, the tech companies that don't want things, you know, don't want the internet broken by unfair regulation or, you know, things that they would, they would call internet breaking regulation, whatever current, you know, acronymic legislation is on the table to do that. Um, you know, putting massive roadblocks saying this piece of legislation is going to break the internet is at least as heavy-handed as the things that Uber does, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and are intended to impact the regulatory process in exactly the same way to the benefit of those companies. But people didn't complain about that part, right? A lot of people on the internet were like, oh, that's fine. Um, and, and yet when Uber influences the regulatory process, they get, they get up in arms. And I think it all, it, there is, I mean, you know, there's, there's so this, this weird, you know, cyberpunk future in which it's, you know, mega corporations uh, plus the government. I mean, I think the part that maybe was less anticipated is that these mega corporations would be built out of the skeletons of like zillions of little startups, you know, that also have um, those you know, their own sets of interests and in, in funding. Anyway, like a coral reef. Kind of a, a point above this, you know, Peter Thiel a few years ago was uh, exploring, and he's not alone, uh, exploring charter cities. Yeah, of course. Yeah, uh, and I believe dropped the project because it didn't make financial sense at the time. But there are kind of murmurs among other leaders in Silicon Valley that that's going to be a project that is going to be uh, pursued by, by someone at some point. You know, I, and I think that's, to be honest, like, I'm not a libertarian, but I think that stuff is kind of cool. Like, at, at some level, one thing that's weird about internet discourse about politics is, like, it's actually fine that people have different political opinions. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's how it's supposed to work, you know? And then they're supposed to try and get those policies enacted and those things work or they don't work. And just because you think, you know, libertarian or socialist policies uh, would be bad, it doesn't mean that the people who want those policies are bad. They believe in their hearts those are good things, you know? And, I, and I'm willing to take people at face value on that. And I think... Um, I believe that someone like Peter Thiel believes it's a better thing for the world to have less government intervention. Um, I agree in some cases, I disagree in others, but I'm glad that people like him exist, to be honest. Um, just like I'm glad that there are people who like really love Bernie Sanders and like believe that you know Uber should be regulated out of existence. I don't personally want that to happen. On the other hand, I'm glad that you need this for a functioning democracy. You don't want everybody to have this intensely narrow set of opinions about um, what is right and, and what is wrong, because like some, if you look back through history, oftentimes there are lots of weird opinions at some point that became now our mainstream. And I think any kind of historically minded analysis of politics would say you don't want everybody to believe the same thing, you know, um, and get caught up in, in wanting everyone else to do that. Right. I think that makes sense. And I think part of 
kind of the differences in our political discourse nowadays comes from suspecting the other side of not operating in good faith. Um, there's all these invisible links that we form when we make political arguments that if we're familiar with the arguments, we don't even get that we're doing. So for instance, right, right. Ben Carson recently compared, um, what do you compare? He compared slavery to abortion, slavery to abortion. Now that sounds ridiculous on its face. And it turns out from reading the national review that those two, there's a web of links that makes sense for people who have thought about that issue on the right. Right, 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 right. Yeah. I mean, which like, obviously I, I would not buy this argument, <laughs> but, but it's, but it's right. Like it's not as it's not coming out of nowhere. Oftentimes what it's almost like a transmission from like, you know, another part of the multiverse, you know, if you were to catch that one thing, you're like, who are these fucking aliens? But like these people are, I believe people are thoughtful. I believe people try and, you know, they may not know who any of the Supreme Court justices are. They may not know that there are two chambers of our, you know, Congress. They may not even know who the fucking vice president is. But most people try to develop some semblance of a moral system or code. Uh, and they come to believe certain things for certain reasons. And, you know, and I, and I, um, I trust people that far, at least, you know. In Kevin Kelly's AMA, which is right before yours, uh, he talked about his belief that in the future, there's going to like religion needs to adapt with the way that technology yeah. uh, is uh, is changing our lives, um, and if not adapt, kind of the implication was new religions form. Uh, what's what's your thoughts or what's your experience uh, in talking to you know, people in the tech uh, world who are hmm. thinking about this sort of thing? I actually, you know, I I, I sort of think there's an incipient uh, variation on on previous spirituality around um, around the way that people think about food and their bodies and the the way that what they ingest makes them feel like. I mean, this is sort of a strange thing to say, but I actually feel like gluten free is as much like a spiritual reaction as it is like a, a physical one not for everybody but for most people like there's this whole sense of like purity and sanctity around the body that you get and it's and it's happening at exactly the time when our when technology is incorporated more and more into our actual lives and like this is like baseless speculation but i connect those two events it's like it's like when the tech workers go to like camp grounded or whatever it's called, right? Like they're like, we're going to go detox from all this technology. I think a lot of the return to like super rustic, minimally processed food is like an actual reaction to how much technology is like attached to us, a part of us, a part of our minds, a part of our bodies. Um, and I think that's, that is a spiritual reaction more than it is an intellectual one, you know? Um, I think, you know, for Kevin, like he's, you know, he's a Christian. He believes in, in this, in these things. Um, and I think it's, it's maybe more, he would maybe think it would be tied to a more organized formal thing. Um, and, and maybe it will be, maybe that like food sanctity purity thing will uh, be, be tied more directly into some, you know, religion. You'll get like a, an artisan religion for people. <laughs> yeah. um, it is just like interesting to note though, that like all of those means of like food production and consumption that are like that are like super within the realm. Like they're, they're most popular where the concentrations of people with like MacBooks are like most, <laughs> you know, are highest. Like if you map those two things, they like directly map onto each other, you know? Um, and I, 
there is something to that, right? Like, what is that? That's fascinating to me because it's not just about taste, at least not what your tongue tastes. It may be about taste in like a sociological sense, but you know, there are other foods that taste good aside from the things that we all eat in San Francisco and Brooklyn, you know? Yeah, Nathan Jurgensen has written a lot about this uh, in reacting to kind of more anti, not anti-technological writers, but writers who say that technology is changing society maybe in ways that we wouldn't appreciate. And he says, you know, the tech detox is most popular amongst heavy, heavy tech users. Right, right, exactly, exactly. So I want to kind of, this is an odd transition, but I think it'll work, which is that um, you always wrote about technology, quote unquote, and writers are always told to specialize. But I think that you were able to take the idea of technology and pretty much apply it anywhere you wanted. So for instance, back in June, you wrote about the three-pointer as a kind of technology, uh, when I'm talking about religion with atheist friends, I- I'll defend it by describing it as a successful technology that works, worked mm-hmm. and works for a lot of people. So mm-hmm. isn't the technological approach a kind of generalist approach? I think it can be. I mean, for me, what it kind of came out of was um, was trying to think about like climate change. I mean, I was one of the earliest things that I reported on was sort of science and energy. It was just kind of where I was drawn. It's what my wife was into, or my then girlfriend. So obviously, I would like to impress her back then. <laughs> and um, and so when you were thinking about the like climate change as a as a thing, every single where every single place that you looked, you saw an object that was produced by a system that had a carbon footprint, that had a water footprint, that the, the, it basically, for me, the technology being everything happened because I came in through the environmental side of things. And when you're doing that, you can literally do a life cycle assessment. You can look at the suppliers for all the, like, you, you realize that, like, everything that, you know, there's a, there's a phrase sometimes people in science and technology studies use, the human-made world, that, like, literally every object is a technology like there's no way that it's not um and then you know the the world outside of our objects is impacted by the production of our objects and the way that we live in our cities and all these kinds of things and so there's always a tech angle always i I sometimes do with kids i'll um as like an exercise, I'll bring in a ser- like a like a bunch of um, items. Like my favorite one is like a mini tube of toothpaste, um, and I'll make them like come up with like twenty tech stories <laughs> around that. Um, and it's pretty it's surprisingly easy because you can do a tech story about any of the ingredients that are inside. Um, that toothpaste you could do about you could do it about the supply chains being different or or the same for mini toothpaste versus big toothpaste. You could do it for like the flavor science that's like inside of there. You could do it for the the sort of cognitive science that goes into sort of colors of the packaging of toothpaste. You could do it on you know whether or not toothpaste has gotten more or less effective <laughs> through the years. You know, I mean, you can just go on and on and right. just mini tube of toothpaste. You know, and they're all to me about how we make stuff in the world, uh, how we engineer it, how we promote it, and all these things basically are technology. I mean, with software, it's so obvious, you know, that that's a technology. Um, with the other things in the world, it's like usually takes a little more doing, but once you click your mind into that space, like anybody can do it. I mean, 15-year-old kids in Oakland, uh, youth radio, like came up with 25 stories in like five minutes, you know? <laughs> it's amazing. Um, so, so, yeah, it's... it's um, it takes effort, I think, to not see the technologies embedded in the world around you once you notice, you know? 
Right. It's a very big lens. Yeah. So, and, and so Fusion um, has kind of started to compete with outlets like BuzzFeed and Vox and maybe Mike to some extent, and it's buying for the attention of young people. Do you think that it's that focus on technology, on the new, that differentiates you from those publications? Well, I think it's that our newsroom is like 65% not white people. I mean, I think that makes a huge, I mean, just on a pure like labor level. have pretty good diversity? Uh, yeah, but they do. They do. And their efforts have been, have been great, et cetera. Um, we just started out with, a, with an incredibly diverse base and we've built on top of it. And I think if you were to look at the numbers, it'd be, it's pretty different actually. Um, like I would say we're the only majority non-Anglo newsroom in, like around. Um, so there's, so there's that, but what I think that allows us to do is to have people out in the world, um, within the communities that they're, that they're working on and thinking about, you know, um, like we can just go places, maybe that other place, other people cannot. Um, so I think that's one piece of it. And I think we've tried to like emphasize that kind of writing. Um, I also think, you know, in that kind of writing. Oh, just like writing that's sort of like embedded in the in the communities, going out into the world and like, you know, seeing, I mean, yeah, this is a small thing, but I'm trying to eliminate the use of like so-and-so told fusion. <laughs> I want to be like, own that shit. So-and-so told you, you know, um, you were the one there. This is the original authority of journalism. I heard this thing. I saw this thing. And, and I want people to really own that. Um, and I do feel like the diversity of our newsroom is really tied into that as an editorial strategy because, you know, it's different people can go different places more easily. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think counter-institutional philosophy. It's you. Yes. Uh, yeah. 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 I, that's, that's, a, that's, I probably am, the the strangest uh, editor in chief in that I in fact feel counter institutional things oftentimes make sense, um, but uh, but I think you know I think that's a big part of it. Um, I also think that we are maybe not at the moment, but I think in the in the near future and what we're building towards is we're just gonna we will have um, a large video operation um, that I think will have its own distinct flavor. I mean, we're in the process of like, putting this thing together, so I can't talk about all of it, but I think, you know, Vice has a flavor, you know, BuzzFeed has a flavor, these places, like, have this stuff, and I think um, we will, too, um, on the video side in particular. Um, and, yeah, and I also think that we, when we think about our take on on the world i do think that like technology and the new possibilities that come from either new products or like new rights for people like those are all things about thinking about how the future uh is is going to work and the new freedoms that people have i mean that's kind of the core of the thing justice technology diversity like all of these things are about finding the ways that different people find new freedoms in the world like that's the big project and i actually think that is in fact like my project like i interviewed tanazi coates a, a few days ago um you know old colleague of mine at the atlantic here in the city at the north theater and, like, he was talking a lot about, like, his project, you know, like, it's just, like, fighting white supremacy, like, in journalism, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that, like, mine isn't quite that specific, but I do feel if I look at my career and I think about what I've done, what I'm trying to do is map out the new possibilities of this, like, changing world. And some of those things have to do with new technologies and other of those things have to do with the access that people get by increasing the quality in the world, 
two different kinds of new experiences. Right, but it but it's it sometimes seems like there can be a risk to that kind of diffusion. So one of your big strategies at Fusion has been to really concentrate on social promotion, and you guys have done a great job. But as we've seen before with um, companies like Upworthy, mm-hmm. uh, a, a brief change in an algorithm can really hurt your kinds of so, social promotion. When you're kind of put when you're kind of pushing your content all over the place, how do you retain the power? To, uh, to promote it, to make sure that changes don't just screw you for good? It's a really interesting. No, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a good question, you know, the kind of centralization versus, you know, distributed models. I think that the, the way that I think about building the institution of fusion is to make it a good place to work that has, like, an infectious culture that, that people get into and learn and, and execute from. And that actually is pretty durable and, and pretty resilient. Um, I think on the specific tactics of the thing, I mean, as you optimize increasing, I mean, we're just talking about Facebook here, basically. As you optimize for Facebook, you also have to build in these resilient strategies. And, you know, I mean, this is basic shit, but like, you know, maybe not every modal that you throw on somebody is going to be uh, is going to be for a Facebook fan. You're going to try and get some people to become newsletter subscribers. You're going to try and get some people to follow in some other method. You're going to have live events that try and like bring people in deeper to the brand so that they have a connection beyond just like uh, this, you know, clicking something in their newsfeed every once in a while. I mean, I, I think that the key thing to recognize is that like Facebook's interests are its own, you know, um, and in some ways, it feels to me like what would benefit Facebook most and what something like Instant Articles would make very easy would be to sort of dis, dis, to unbundle or disaggregate publications into individual writers, um, like, like in the way that YouTube essentially has that with YouTube creators, you know, instead of having all these television networks that make uh, TV shows, although those obviously still exist, there's all these creators who go do it individually and work directly with YouTube. And then um, get snatched up by uh, movie studios. And-, and then get snatched up by movie studios, you know, and then, yeah, all those, all those things are, are true, but the vast majority of people who are YouTube creators will and always will remain YouTube creators. You know? um, but don't you think what will happen with them is the same thing that'll happen to bloggers, which is that the, scre- the cream will be scooped off the top by older institutions? Kind of, except for what's interesting about them is that they don't want to do that stuff anymore. YouTube stars actually do not want many times to actually be truly inside an institution. Um, We've found this with negotiating with them a lot. Um, You know, they want to sign a three-month deal to do this. They want to sign a nine-month deal to do this. They'll sign a deal to do this series, but they want to remain a free agent. And they've actually developed an alternative infrastructure to studios or these other things that you might imagine, which is basically just like they've got like this sets of agents. I can't remember what they're called, MCNs, I think, or whatever, that essentially band them together into these kind of loose networks that can more effectively negotiate with the various institutional players out there. And to me, I mean, as someone who, you know, I'm not a YouTuber in that sense um, on, the, on the production or consumption side, um, and so that shit had blew my mind when I really started to like understand the way that it worked. Um, and, and you can see, 
Um, it's so far been very hard for writers to make that happen, in part because they don't get paid out directly in the way and their ads are worth less than for video people. But that's kind of, that, I feel like that same fundamental pressure, like what Kevin Kelly would say, what technology wants, or in this case, what, what the platforms want, is to have the, the least amount of bargaining power on the content production side, but the most content. And so how would you do that? You would essentially break apart any powerful entities that exist on the content production side and like recreate them like as players that have no, no, no negotiating power. Um, and that's what's happened on YouTube, at least primarily. And it's, it's fascinating to me. Um, right. That's almost like almost the opposite. You're an optimist where John Herman is a pessimist. So he's sliding into <laughs> apocalypse and you see us creating a whole new ecosystem where people... Kind of, I mean, John Herman and I agree about like almost everything. I think it's pretty much just the cast of mind of whether or not you think we're going to be able to figure it out or, or whether you're not. Like, I think we both see that in the future at some very not that distant point, like media will be completely rearranged into some fucked up set of cross subsidies and revenue models and all these things. And I just sort of believe that like, it'll be okay. Mm-hmm. And I think he believes it won't be. And I don't actually think that it's an evidence-based assessment. Yeah. I think it's more just like, yeah, I guess so. You know, I mean, and I, I guess I would put it like this. Like if you would have told me that Vice can make as much money doing what they do as they do five years ago, I would have been like, bullshit. There is no way, no way they could do it. It's just not worth it, you know? But look at them now, you know? And they figured out all these different ways of, of monetizing what they do. There's hired like 200 people in Canada, you know? It's like they've, they've figured something out and it's not perfect. It's weird, you know, whatever, whatever. But it's, um, you know, maybe, yeah. It's, but they found something that worked. And I do think uh-huh. you, you will see that. Um. So when we talk about a newly diffuse institution like Fusion, it's obvious that you're still going to be very patriotic, very supportive of the institution. But how do you, as someone who probably gets approached as a mentor a lot, approach mentorship outside of Fusion? I mean, you have to be giving to your employees. What about when a stranger asks for your time? That's interesting. What time? (laughs) Um, You know, I think uh, I try and get into like the journalism schools, um, at least Berkeley, because, you know, it's it's close by. We had people in here a couple days ago in in the Fusion office in Oakland from Berkeley. Um, And in part, it's because like the J schools, as they're currently constituted, are like they're like a print publication, you know, like the people who are running them want to understand what's happening on the internet at a detailed operational level, but they're not in it, you know, and so they can't tell, they, they just can't provide the context that these people need to launch their careers. So that's really a lot of how I think about it is, is trying, you know, they don't have to believe what I believe, but I feel like I'm, I can lay out the landscape for younger journalists to be like, look, you can, you can do a lot of things here, but this is what it looks like. You know, and here are the skills that are probably going to be useful because of these structural factors and the way the industry is working. Um, and I think, you know, five years ago when I would go into the Berkeley J School and all these people wanted to be like freelancers, I was like, look, what's coming is there's going to be a ton of staff jobs. They're not necessarily going to be doing New Yorker long form, but there's going to be a lot of jobs working for places that need you to make shit a lot of stuff, you know? And so if you want a good career and you want to be proud of yourself as a journalist, figure out how am I going to make a lot of stuff? 
while still doing the kinds of stories that I want. And like, they did not want to hear that stuff when I was going in there. And in fact, being a freelancer is really hard. It might be harder now than it's ever been just because the, the dollar per word style magazine stuff is going away and the $300 per 2,000 word essay stuff has really come up on the freelance side. Um, and you're just kind of there, and there are a ton more staff jobs. I mean, there are so many staff jobs now relative uh, to what there were, you know, five years ago. Yeah, we're recording this uh, podcast on the day that Grantland got killed. Mm. Does that put the fear of God in you? Not really. I mean, I, I, first of all, let's just say, love Grantland. Amazing writers feel very... You know, anytime one of these publications goes down that has like built a brand around quality, it hurts. You know, I mean, like you just—it's the world is worse today than it was yesterday. Um, I think, you know, as a business proposition, I have no idea what what the deal was over there. Um, And you know, they had the defection of the guy who founded it. You know, you lose top cover and makes everything harder in every kind of organization. You know. I don't think that, I mean, my own hot take is sort of anti-hot take. I don't know that it says a ton about the, you know, the value of long form or like, you know, whether uh, you can launch a, uh, a startup from within a bigger company or like any of those, I, the, the factors or, I mean, one thing I would say, I feel like I have learned at Fusion or actually in reaching back into the Atlantic is that like the success or failure of many experiments that we have tried is like, Complete, some of it is contingent on just like luck and timing and whatever. Um, and, and in all cases, it's incredibly specific to the people who are involved, way more specific than I would have thought. Um, you know, like maybe like history as a whole doesn't matter who the people are, you know, it's all very structural. But like for these little jitters in the, in the way, you know, the, the content industry, God, I hate the but media or journalism works. Um, you know, so much of it comes down to the personalities. It's usually a few key people making all the decisions, you know? Um, and I just think, I'm actually like trying to figure out as we're, as we're talking, uh, someone working or that's, we're trying to figure out how to buy Grantland a drink at the bar they're going to. <laughs> um, uh, that's the least we can do. I feel like, you know? Um, yeah. If you were just getting out of college in 2015, uh, knowing what you know now about the media world and, uh, about your skill sets and what you want to do, uh, what would you do? Um, well, if I was just getting out of college now, I think I probably would have kept up with my coding from when I was a, when I was a nerdy high schooler. Yeah, uh, in a way that I did not when I was when I was going to college. Um, so let's assume I did that. Um, I I really like some of these the people who can string together. Um, like coding gigs with like making cool media stuff. And my model for this is there's a, one of my next door neighbors is this like super friendly, red haired, bearded guy who like does like, yeah, contract coding work that makes him some money. And then he does like crazy art, data visualization and like media projects. And like, that's what I would want to do. I, I actually think if I were coming out now, I would maybe be even more of like, someone who was trying to develop an independent identity outside of an institution than, than I have been in my career. So I know that you're a big basketball fan, so we did want to ask you a little bit about mm. the season. Uh, you think your team has a chance? you think the Warriors <laughs> have a chance? 
I mean, that team last year was pretty, pretty magical. Um, I think it's hard to imagine that it would be, you know, uh, exactly the same. Um, you know, the core is intact. They're, they're going to be really good. Um, you know, whether or not they'll be able to like win the NBA championship, like I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I think, you know, the thing that I think a lot about, um, the Warriors or, or anybody else is like, uh, and this, this will apply back to, you know, the, the media world, the way that they're playing or, you know, the way that, you know, the spread offense in college football, you know, got going. I mean, like these things, like they, they are innovations for a very small period of time before people can like fully adjust. They're know? technologies, but people keep yeah. iterating. Exactly. The other people around them like immediately come up with counter technologies to these things, right? I mean, it's just the nature of the, of the beast. And I think that the main thing I think the Warriors have working against them this year is like all the NBA teams were able to play them last year. They all saw the way the offense runs and who's important and they still have the same fundamental team. It may be that they're, you know, just better than the other teams. But I think whatever element of surprise um, the Warriors had, particularly in the early part of the season last year, where like suddenly Draymond Green is like playing this key role no one was expecting, and the team's fucking amazing. Like that part of it, they won't have, you know. And so uh, I think it'll be interesting to see, like, if they have to like evolve new, you know, new <laughs> ways of playing, you know, um, like literally new new lineups and things. Like almost like you see. I mean, that's one of the reasons I love the NBA playoffs. Is like you get to watch game by game the way a team makes adjustments and those evolutions. I think it's like the best thing you can possibly uh, watch to like understand the tactics of, of sports and like what makes that interesting. Yeah. I think we'll end with a question on legacy. Sure. You know, how do you, one way of asking that is what you want people to say uh, at your funeral. Another way of asking <laughs> that is what, what you want your Wikipedia page to say. Uh, yeah. So somewhere in the middle, how do you answer that? Um, you know, I love being a manager. I love being an editor in chief. It's fun. It's a real, it's a genuinely very fun job. Um, but like I'm, I'm a writer and I, I would hope that, you know, when people look back on my career and my work that like, they say, you know, this was a person who connected up, you know, these other human social discourses with the ways that technology was, was working. And that, you know, I did so for the purpose of like creating a future that was like a little more just and equal, you know? I mean, that would be what I would like in the largest sense to say, um, you know, and, and when I think about that as like an actual project, you know, I've got a long way to go. <laughs> You know, I, mean, I think like, um, you know, it's, I'm, I'm still relatively young, though I feel old, you know. Alexis, thank you for taking the time to chat with us. This has been really fantastic. Thanks, y'all. Appreciate it. <laughs>